welcome to Space Cowboys, a podcast about the hit CW network show, Roswell, New Mexico. I'm one of your hosts, Liz Prue, and myself and co-host, Meg Bonney, are bringing you an exclusive bonus episode with the series showrunner and creator, Karina McKenzie. Your favorite alien podcast hosts, yours truly and my co-pilot, Meg Bonney, flew down to Austin, Texas on the heels of South by Southwest for an exclusive Roswell, New Mexico screening hosted by ATX Festival and Warner Brothers. Before the screening and fireside chat with Karina, Meg and I met with her in her hotel room for an intimate conversation about the personal pain, love, and ultimate light that created this already beloved series. What makes the series so special to fans is that it's set in an era that not many CW series venture into. The characters in Roswell, New Mexico are 28 years old nearing an end to a rocky decade of their 20s. There are injured war veterans, scientists who've lost family members, heartbroken cowboys, and of course, aliens. Among the supernatural pods, mind control, and telepathic fantasy elements, there are moments that hit home to human viewers. Who hasn't cried over a shot of tequila after the bar closes? Karina not only provides insight into the characters of your favorite new show, Yes, we're talking to you, Malik's fans, but she provides advice for women, creators and fans alike. Tune in and head to our Fierce Female section on purefandom.com for more female-driven inspiration. Karina, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for coming to meet me in my hotel room. <laughs> I know this is so intimate. Very I intimate. was like, I was like, is this gonna sound creepy if I ask them to come up to my room? Which it did sound creepy, but like, it's fine. I don't know. It's Austin. Shit's loud out there. I know, right? <laughs> Everywhere we went was loud, and we're like, nope, can't refer to it. So <laughs> it's not works. gonna work. This works. Um, so before we get started, just to break the ice, because obviously we're not really comfortable together yet. Um, <laughs> what are you binging right now when you have time? Um, man, I'm addicted to cooking shows. Great British Bake Off? No, the stakes aren't high enough for me. Yeah. They're too nice? No, they're too nice. They're, um, MasterChef is like my favorite show. During the, during the course of shooting Roswell, I binge watched every season of MasterChef and MasterChef Junior. I don't know. Something about Gordon Ramsay like suits me. Um, He's crazy. He's awesome. um, but in like a more serious note, it's also like I come home and I'm like exhausted and I don't want to watch my kind of TV because my brain is like I'm never gonna make a cooking show, so I don't need to watch it for like tips and tricks and advice. But like as soon as I watch a show, like like one of my favorite shows ever is This Is Us. Everyone should watch it, but after it airs, like. DVR it and watch Roswell instead, right? Like that exact <laughs> moment. But um, whenever I watch it, I'm like, I'm wondering what those conversations were like in the writer's room. I'm wondering how long they've had that plan. I'm wondering um, how expensive the prosthetic makeup is. So when I really want to shut my brain down, I watch something cheesy. But um, the man, what do I love? I love, um, yeah, This Is Us is a big one, but I'm not really binging it. Um, I recently binged, uh, Sabrina. Oh, yeah. Fun one. Um, actually a little darker than I prefer, weirdly. Hmm. Like, I got a little, a little creeped out by that one. The devil stuff was very, I wasn't expecting, like, the, um, 
what is it? It's like a main ad. It made me think of in True Blood when they had the main ad. I never watched True Blood. They had, it was like that. There was yeah. a season where there was that kind of stuff, and it was like, oh, the camp is gone, and the devil is here. It's so funny. When True Blood started, I think I watched a few episodes in the beginning, and I remember being like, I'm cool with a lot of sex, and I'm cool with a lot of blood, but I feel weird about this very bloody sex. <laughs> yeah. And I like it it was like just like one step. I was like a little too prudish then. It was a long time ago. <laughs> but yeah, I didn't really watch True Blood much. Um when we cast Nathan on the originals, I think I I checked out a few of his scenes, but I didn't yeah. Oh yeah, he was on it. Yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. I forgot he was Lafayette's he was guy, right? Boyfriend, he was boyfriend yeah. Boyfriend I'm I don't know. He was a very, he was very by the way, yeah. Cowboy mm-hmm. broody. Even he, then was oh uh, yeah. He, he, if I remember correctly, the, he, he was a recast, like there, someone else had played the character for a season and then didn't want to do the gay stuff. And so they recast him and it was like, it was really annoying because we had just cast him on the originals and I had to Mm -hmm. share him. It was like, he was constantly flying back and forth and I was constantly having to rewrite things and, um, yeah, but anyway, we're proud. <laughs> um, what, what else? I'm trying to think. I mean, my big thing, to be honest, is murder documentaries oh, yeah. and just crime documentaries in general. Um, I I need Netflix to like make more of them. Like I need mm-hmm. them. I, they soothe me. So like I just finished watching all, all the t- Ted Bundy tapes and yep. um, I love making a murderer. The um, Stephen Avery's lawyer follows me on Twitter mm-hmm. and I'm like. <gasps> I'm like, it, it's my greatest celebrity follow <laughs> I have ever had. Um, and, like, Obama follows me. Like, <laughs> I'm like, I don't care. Where's Kathleen Zellner? Right. Um, and, and, yeah, that's the stuff I really love. Mm-hmm. I mean, last night I ruined my life by watching the Michael Jackson documentary on HBO. Oh, girl. Did you, I, should I even watch it? It I'm is, like... um, it's a horror movie. It is absolutely devastating. And for me, it's really weird because, like, the, you know, Wade Robson is sort of the one of the two men whose stories it is. Mm-hmm. And I grew up watching Wade because I was a huge NSYNC fan. Like, diehard, like, read NSYNC fan fiction. Like, mm-hmm. was, like, obsessed. And, like, p- faked sick to stay home to watch them on Rosie O'Donnell. Like, I was obsessed <laughs> with them. And Wade Robson was practically part of the group for a really long time. Mm-hmm. And then you're listening to him tell this story, and he tells it so beautifully and with such self-awareness and with such um, honesty about the most insane and painful things. Like, he knows he's going to sound crazy Mm -hmm. when he explains that even though Michael Jackson abused him, he deeply, deeply, deeply loved this man. Like, he was in love with him, always. And the, the... He says that with such frankness and honesty and it just really makes you think a lot about, you know, the the way we process trauma and the way we process grief. Anyway, I'm getting into dark shit. But, um, yeah, I watch a lot of dark shit. Well, it makes, I think it's, um, it explains your writing, too. Like, obviously, <laughs> speaking of gay stuff, Malik's. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of... <laughs> speaking of gay stuff. Speaking of gay stuff. <laughs> that was a real Sorry, smooth this, transition. You, you, I know, right? You rock on about Malik's. So you, Malik's is... Oh, Malik's. Yeah. Yeah, I I love Malik's. Like, I've, even in my own writing, have taken to, like, there's enough hetero love stories out there. Mm -hmm. If you need them, you can find them. And for me, like, this story, I felt, like, so pulled in with their history and, like, how they're connected. Like, how did you approach writing them and 
and like what kind of inspirations did you pull from it's really hard for me to like think about the beginning of it because it was always a part of what I was going to do for the show like I it was just as important to me to have LGBT representation as it was to um, make Liz a Latina um, and that was, you know, Liz was Latina in the original book series. Um, but this was definitely a new direction. Um, at first I was, uh, no, I knew how, exactly how I was going to write it. Like the, the pilot scenes between the two of them, um, did not change, but for, over the course of a million rewrites mm-hmm. of, of that pilot, I mean, a million, like the, the version that, that. Uh, Nathan read an early draft that, like before we were even I was even thinking of casting and I was like help um, <laughs> and that version ended with a like terrorist attack at the reunion literally a million versions of this thing mm-hmm. what never changed was the three significant scenes between Michael and Alex in oh. the pilot um, we ended up cutting lines from them in, in post production because not that they weren't wonderful but because um, the our pilot was like 73 minutes long when we saw the first cut, so obviously a lot hit the cutting room floor. Um, but but the nature of that relationship, the fraught nature, the, the pain that is involved there um, was always the same. And I think I'm, one, I'm used to seeing LGBT love stories that begin in light and end in darkness. Um, you know, so many, uh, so many gay themed films and romances and uh, TV and plays and in somebody dying of AIDS, literally. Um, and even now I find that we are watching that story when it's, it's not the reality for the, the, for characters right now or for people right now. Um, the story is very different from what it was 20 or 30 years ago. Um, and so I wanted to take a story that begins in darkness and strives toward light. So these kids had their world shattered when they were very, very young in um, multiple ways. And they are now doing a lot of work to pull themselves into the light or they're realizing they have to do that work. I mean, I got a tweet last night from a fan that says, said, you know, Liz and Max get scenes together every episode. And it's not fair. We haven't had a present day Michael and Alex scene for a long time. And um, my response to that is that these are characters on very different journeys. They are both. Every romance on the show is as important to me as all the other romances on the show. The only thing that is more important to me is the relationship between Max, Michael, and Isabel. So for me, that's what I what what I want the story that's what I want to be careful with. I want to be, be very protective of that relationship. The rest of them, like I love them all. Um, even like the little beginnings of Michael and Maria that we're starting to see, like I want those stories to matter, but I can't just walk right thinking about like, did this ship get enough screen time or are we making sure that, um, the gay couple has as much intimacy as a straight couple, which by the way, if we were telling the same story, the Max and Liz story and the, the Michael and Alex story, like the Max and Liz fans would have spent the first few episodes like, they haven't even touched yet. What? This isn't fair. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. there's, 
things are going to ebb and flow for people differently. Um, but one of the things, that, things that's important to me is that in episode three, when Alex says that he can't be with Michael, Michael knows his reasons are BS. It's not about selling copper wire. But this is a veteran who's been injured with PTSD who's asking for space. Michael giving Alex space is as much an act of love as banging on the door would be for somebody else, you know? And and I like what we've do, done with that space. We're, Alex is slowly reckoning with his past and reckoning with who he is. Um, I think the episode that he spent with Kyle was really important to talk about, you know, childhood bullying and the effect it can have on people as adults. Um, I really want to tell a story about a bully who got, who figured his shit out. Um, because I expect that of people. I expect that, I, I expect that people should change and I think that we should allow people to change, apologize for what they've done, move forward and not always carry the burden of the mistakes they made in the past. Um, themselves. That said, it was also very important to me that as he starts to apologize to Alex, Alex is like, you are a gnat. (laughs) You know, like, Mm -hmm. I've been through so much worse than you that I'm not even going to dignify your apology at this point. It didn't come when I needed it. Don't apologize to me now. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, these guys are working towards something better for themselves, and they're working towards something better than this old town that that has uh, just a ugly history of intolerance and and abuse and I think that you know stepping into the light is a story that we're telling for those two characters whether they do it together or separately you know their journey is very intertwined and um you know people keep I I, I muted the word end game on my twitter (laughs) I can't see any tweets that have the word end game in it because (laughs) I don't I'm not really thinking about it Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, right now I know how I want the show to end for sure. Um, but I don't, it, but who ends up with who isn't necessarily a factor in that right yet. It'll, whatever works will work, but I have to look at the show as at least like a four season thing. So if everybody had their happy ending soon, um, where do you go? And I don't know. I've been talking a lot. <laughs> You're supposed to. You're I, a good um, feature. I, I see a lot of things that are like, you know, uh, writers don't know how to write happy couples. Writers don't know how to write people in love. And um, that might be true for me. I don't know. But I use my writing to work out a lot of my own trauma and my own shit. And um, I have a lot more experience with difficult relationships than I do with being like, happily, comfortably, madly in love. Um, I always think back on, uh, there was an episode of Friday Night Lights. All hail. I know, we're all like... Three, three. You know, just quietly worship Coach Taylor. There was an episode of Friday Night Lights where the big conflict between Coach and Tammy was she wanted a new house. She They went to look mm-hmm. at a house. And um, I can't remember what season it was, but like... He wanted to give her that house so badly, and she walked around that house seeing her whole life in that house, and in the end, they couldn't afford it. He couldn't afford it, and he was 
beating himself up because of being unable to give her what he she wanted. And I thought it was very noble that instead of like being like, yeah, fuck it, let's get it. He was like, I, we can't do it. And here's why. And that to me was a perfect example of like real human tension in a relationship in between people who really, really love each other. But it also like every show can't be Friday Night Lights, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I'm not really, I, part of the reason that I wanted to do this show and pushed it 10 years into the future or, or, you know, aged everybody up 10 years is I don't think everybody's had a good 10 years. I think those 10 years for these people on this show have been really hard, probably with the exception of Kyle. Um, but, and I, I want to play that out. I want to watch them get to a good place and it's going to take a minute. Um, but yeah, that's what I like hurting people, show. I guess. Like I, <laughs> I like to cry when I watch TV, whether it's crying because of happiness or nostalgia or actual pain. And yeah, I mean, I, I said on Twitter last night, um, I, I had a really hard year and, um, it was easier to, I mean, I went through a breakup right at the beginning. I lost people that I really loved. Um, I you know, stopped speaking to a really dear friend over the course of the year, which did a number on my self-esteem. And all that stuff I got to put into writing. And so, like, sorry to the audience, but I'm inflicting my pain on you because <laughs> I, it's what I know how to do. It's what I'm good at. Um, and I think it's what makes these characters relatable. Like, I think almost anybody can see a little bit of themselves reflected back at them on the show. And not just in, like, the diversity aspect, but, like, in, in, this idea of like I'm 28 and I don't know if I I don't know if 18 year old me would like me right now um stuff I think about a lot and you know they're all striving toward the light and we'll see that happen it's so true I mean we so we're in our early 30s and we talk a lot on our podcast about why we love the show is because the characters are close to our age Mm -hmm. and I mean we like what you just said about looking back at your 18 year old self my husband and I say to each other all the time, if we met 10 years ago, there's no way in hell we would be together. Like, no way. And your 20s are great, but they're also the hardest times of your life. Emotionally, financially, you know, whether you go to school and leave school or not. Like, you're still figuring shit out. Um, like, you did a tweet about, hey guys, remember when you were in your 20s and you thought money was, pla- oh, still living Money that, fake. still living that great dream, I was love getting slapped in the face with that when we mm-hmm. were buying our house last year, um, but it's just, it's hard, and I think that's why this show is resonating with maybe a newer audience for CW people, like, we noticed that a lot of the fans that interact with us on Pure Fandom, for Roswell specifically, are people that watched the originals, which was an older audience, mm-hmm. or people that watched followed us from TVD way back in the day, so they're our age, mm-hmm. it's relatable. And it's interesting to see, it real, it's more refreshing to see these characters not defined by their relationships. Mm-hmm. They are just part of their character journey. Like, we love how, we were just talking about how Liz is now using her smarts to, like, we're actually starting to get to see her scientific stuff. Will that mean that she'll start bonding with Isabel a little bit more? Like, she starts looking at Isabel as, um, well, she's getting a different perspective now that Isabel has willingly put herself away. You know, she's kind of like, okay, well, 
they willingly are trying to be better and you could see her not be as pissed off like she's Mm -hmm. still pissed off but maybe she can start to look at the situation as a scientist versus rose's sister i don't know i think it's less like liz like rose uh less isabel trying to be better in in liz's mind and more like well she's behind bars and i need to move forward because like that's taken care of yeah i think i think that i don't think that right now she looks at isabel as like somebody who is with the possibility of redemption for her um like with the line where she said then how can you apologize yeah like you don't even know what you yeah you don't know what you did yeah and and you know to liz isabel's mental trauma or whatever she it is she was going through doesn't trump you killed my sister like rosa had mental issues too rosa the whole town thinks she got behind the wheel of a car and killed two people Mm -hmm. because of those mental issues and they didn't they're not all saying man we should really start a a drug education program in this town they're saying the mexican girl killed the killed people and i think that you know liz uh i think that yeah really right now she's like okay well at least there's a temporary hold on Isabel because one of the things she said in, in, in this last night's episode um, hopefully it didn't get cut out I didn't actually get to watch it last night because this hotel was not at the CW but like I've seen it a million times just not for a while um, but one of the things she said was uh, you know how can you know if you're going to do it again if you don't know why you did it in the first place and if she does do it again Liz, is, Liz isn't telling Liz isn't making a big scene and saying, this alien killed my sister. So if that alien does it again, is blood on Liz's hands now? Like, she's Mm -hmm. thinking about this from a lot of different perspectives. Um, And now that Isabel is, you know, locked up in the hospital where Liz works, um, she's feeling better right now, and she wants to move forward. She, you know, is a scientist. She doesn't want to be in Roswell forever um, she has work to do and has her own dreams to, to achieve. And she's tired of spending so much time looking back. In, in her mind, she's like, I've got all the answers I'm going to get. She would like to know why, but nobody knows why. So she got the who, the what, the where. And now she's trying to say, okay, I've got some closure on my sister and I'm going to now work on being a scientist and helping people because that's what she does. Um... I think her any concern that she has for Isabel is about lingering feelings for Max and about knowing what it feels like to lose a sister. Mm. So she's not real worried about Isabel's feelings, but as angry as she is at Max, and she is very angry at Max, I don't think she wants to watch him go through that. She's not really an eye for eye, an eye kind of person. You probably can't answer this because it'd probably be a huge spoiler, but do we feel we were talking about this in our podcast yesterday? We feel like Rosa's story isn't done. Like we know who killed her. Um, we like kind of think we know why, but she still feels like she's a, a bigger piece to the puzzle. Like we've got a few reveals left to make. Okay. Um, there were scenes in the, I mean, Isabel literally doesn't remember being friends with Rosa. Like, she remembers 
they know who each other are because it's a very small town. Mm-hmm. But she doesn't remember these, this bond that they had. Um, and, you know, a lot of the scenes that we showed in, the, uh, in episode 106 were privileged scenes just between these two people, one of whom is dead and one of whom doesn't remember these scenes. So that was privilege to the audience to sort of be able to understand what we're missing. Mm-hmm. But um, we, have to, we still have to, we still have to reveal things to the characters. Um, one example that I've given is like, we see Michael come into the cave just as Isabella is killing, finishing killing Rosa. Um, we don't see yet what happened before Michael showed up in that cave. Mm-hmm. Um, so we've still got some things to reveal. Okay. <laughs> yeah, we have lots of theories. We went real deep into the theories in our podcast. I know, I really like it. Everybody's got lots <laughs> of theories. Yeah, the theories are fun. Sometimes they're a little crazy. But um, one of the things that we, we've been really enjoying about the show, because of our age, I think, too, is the music yeah. in the show. And the cover, the jumper cover, that mm-hmm. was in this episode that aired last night, um, episode seven. Yeah. So are there going to be any more of those covers or any, like, big songs yes. that you're excited to see yes. for us to um, see? Yeah. There's a lot of really good music moments coming up. Um, I don't want to, I don't want to spoil too much because it's like, it's weird because it's such an important part of the show to me that it's like, I'm, I'm so protective of it because I like, I'm like, oh God. Um, but, uh, yeah, the reason that we do that one, it's, it's a nice homage to the original series. I think, you know, people talk about the music on that show all the time mm-hmm. and, um, we couldn't put these characters in high school in 1999 because then it would be 2008 and. I want to talk about the world as it looks like post Obama, not, (laughs) not right when it was all getting better. Um, but, um, we still use nineties music. I say that the, the jukebox in the crash down hasn't been updated since 99. There used to be a line in the pilot, but again, we had to pull it out for time. Um, you know, basically Liz says Rosa was obsessed with that jukebox. Hasn't been updated since 99 and she thought it was cool. Whatever she thought was cool. I thought was cool. So, you know, um, but, but it's, it's a nice nod to the original show. And also to me, yeah, like it, it invokes instant nostalgia in me, not for high school, but like for before that, for like riding a car with my dad and, um, you know, I used to walk to the bus singing Mr. Jones to myself as a kid. And I think that that's sort of the, the, the feeling that we wanted to invoke, like, you hear an Alanis Morissette song, and you we've got a, a little bit of an Alanis Morissette song um, on the next episode you'll hear tonight. You instantly get transported when you hear her voice, you know? So it's, it's yeah, we got cool moments coming up. And <laughs> Third Eye Blind is, like, one of my all-time favorite bands, and for sure the, like, the biggest nostalgia-invoking band for me because it was, like, right when I was, like, discovering Boys, that's, that album came out, right? So it's, oh, like... Yeah. I was in sixth or seventh grade when it came out and it was like, just like the song we played at boy girl parties, you Mm -hmm. know? And so that first third eye blind album means so much to me. And, um, you know, a year or more than a year ago, uh, the lead singer followed me on Twitter because of some funny thing I said about Trump or something Mm and wrote me and was like, Hey, you know, are you going to be in San Diego for the comic con? Cause we're playing. And, I was like, yeah. And, um, 
we ended up meeting up after the show and he brought us backstage and it was so cool. And like, what? so when it, when it was time to do, to put God of Wine on the show and to like, you know, it's a different story when you're getting rights to a song if it's part of a story. So like, if it's just playing in the background, you're doing one thing. If there's a lyric written on a dead girl's hand, you have to do a whole different process. Really? Yeah. Oh, okay. um, And then, uh, and I wrote him a letter and he was like, yeah, sure, take it. And, uh, they've been super generous with us. They've, they've, you know, our music budget isn't that big, so we have to really like beg. Um, but yeah, they've been really cool. Third Eye Blind's the best. Crystal Baller was like yeah, my jam. So we thought we were um, really cool in eighth grade, and this girl who I was friends with, her older brother, was like, "Yeah, you guys want to smoke weed out of the pen?" And it was <laughs> totally oregano. But I was like, "I smoked weed to Crystal Baller." <laughs> it was oregano. I probably did smoke weed to yeah. Crystal Baller, <laughs> but you know, good time. I uh, yeah. I, there's a song uh, from one of a later album called A Thousand Julys um, and it's this like really sort of like angry song but I remember just thinking it was so sexy when I was in like senior in high school or whatever and I used to crank it in my first car and you know you listen to that stuff now and you feel that I think anything that you listen to when you mm-hmm. first got your license is like it, it pulls such a feeling out of you, like a, like a fucking truck, you know? Mm-hmm. It's like getting hit by a truck, and you're like a, a, like a nostalgia truck, and that's what this show is for me a lot, a nostalgia truck. Nostalgia truck, I like that. Mm-hmm. You pay posted... me to put words together for some reason. <laughs> <laughs> you posted, was it a playlist for ATX, and you had put yeah. a bunch of songs on there, and one of them was Strawberry Wine. Yeah. And like, I had not thought about that song in 100 <laughs> years, and then I was like, Oh my god, that boy who broke my heart. And I remember mm-hmm. sitting in my Chevy Lumina with the windows rolled up in my mom's driveway, just like screaming. How dare he? How dare he? My Chevy Lumina. And I'm like, ah. I don't remember the boy, but I remember the song. And yeah. I sitting Heck in yeah. Car. Yeah, I tried to. Yes. Um, so, what we're talking about is I made a Crash Down Jukebox playlist for uh, the ATX girls who I've known forever and who I love. Um, I've been working with Spotify a lot. I do, like, you know, character playlists and stuff. Um, I'm going to start doing more. But, uh, yeah, I tried to put, like, some on there that, like, everyone knows, like, Strawberry Wine, that would, like, really resonate. And I also put some, like, deep cuts. Like, there's a couple songs on... There's a song on there called Hannah, I Locked You Out, which was, like, you would never know it unless you listened to the Babysitter's Club movie soundtrack, which I did. <gasps> did so <you>? much. <laughs> Babysitter's They're making Club. a Netflix series. I know. I, oh, my gosh. I'm super stoked about it. <laughs> We want to ask other females in the industry, female-driven projects. You're obviously an awesome project. Who else are you following in TV or film, or who should people be aware of and follow? Because we have a lot of our, like, 85% of our writers are female, and they're all students, or they're freelance writers like us, and they're just trying to find more people to look up to. I mean, obviously, the biggest per- the, the biggest influence in my life has been Julie Pleck. Um, you know, and I don't need to be like, Hey guys, check out Julie Plex's work. Like she's an icon. Um, but I will say that like finding them, if you want to be in this business or even adjacent to this business, even as a journalist, like I finding a mentor and finding someone who's in your corner was so important to me. And like Julie and I are similar in ways, in good ways. And we're similar in, in bad ways. Like we both, you know, have have trouble reacting to conflict. We both get annoyed, easily annoyed at stuff. We can both be like 
a little obnoxious and a little too loud and a little, all these things. And finding somebody who I respect so deeply that shares not only positive qualities, but negative qualities with me, like was so powerful because it made me feel like I could do, like I could use that. Like Mm -hmm. being the loud girl wasn't a problem all of a sudden. It was something that I shared with somebody that I love so much. And she, you know, is somebody who, as she climbs the ladder, every step she takes, she looks down to see if there's anybody below her who needs a hand up. And, um, you know, I'm not the only person that she mentors, but I, uh, I feel like, I feel so loved and I feel so, I mean, I can't tell you, there are a lot of times this season that I called her just crying because I didn't know how to get past something. And, she it did, she didn't even tell me how to get past it. She just like helped me cry, and then I talked myself into how I was going to get past it. And and you know that's so important. And she gets a, she gets she gets a hard time I think a lot online, and I feel so defensive of her because you know you have never met a woman who is more supportive of other women. She'll give you the shirt off her back. Um, so obviously Julie, um, you know everything I have I owe to Julie, including like self-confidence and a family away from my family in LA like the they didn't she didn't have to like grab the hand of a 22 year old journalist who had no idea what it was like to be on a tv set and be like hey you're part of the family now and come to drinks and come to dinner and and you know come to my birthday party she didn't have to do that but that was almost 10 years ago and I have a family of that you know that tbd family thing that we said we talked about we're not fucking around you know i recently was in new york and got a text from paul wesley and he was like are you in new york and you didn't tell me and we immediately all went out to dinner and like you know that's it's 10 years later i had dinner with julie and nina kevin uh and jen breslow recently and greg berlanti and it's like it's like no time has passed and i'm so grateful for that um because i have a safety net so that's one thing um other women that i think uh, people should be aware of. Um, we were just talking about Winona Earp and Emily Andres. Um, I'm sorry, Emily, if I'm pronouncing your last name wrong. I did two panels with Emily at ATX Fest this last year, and I just found her so compelling. I think she is such a voice for um, women and queer people, and you know, she's so proud of of the fans of her show. She's not just proud of what she's making, but she's proud of the fans um, and what they bring to the project. Um, and, you know, she's she's working in an original, interesting space, I think, especially for women. Most shows like Winona Earp are not led by queer women. And, mm-hmm. um, I mean, on screen. Um, yeah, I think she's somebody who has the potential to, like, change the landscape entirely. Um, we were just talking about how frustrating it is that it seems like Winona Earp is in trouble and is on the bubble. And I find that, you know, so many of these shows that do mean so much to marginalized people are always in trouble. Um, and I don't think that is because they're not getting watched. I think that's because our rating system is incredibly antiquated. Like, there's a box in a house in, in the Midwest that hasn't been updated in 15 years and you know, is still saying that the person who lives there is 35, but they're 45. And Mm -hmm. it's, it's just, 
the Nielsen system is is broken. Um, it's not how we consume our media anymore, and it's certainly not how young people consume their media. So the young people are not being given a voice right now as mm-hmm. in terms of the content that's getting made. And I think it's the responsibility of the industry to figure out how to get their content on screens that are financially lucrative to them. Like, you know, the CW has has their their online app. Um, the commercials on it are super annoying, and so people don't want to watch it on there. And I, it it's actually a really great app, but and it's a really great way to to watch CW shows. But like, we got to take a look at what kids are are what they want and. Commercials are, like, not what they want. It's really annoying to me because Mm -hmm. I actually like commercials. (laughs) Like, I feel like if I'm going to make a show that's six acts with a powerful act out and a powerful act in, like, I want you to take a break from the show for three minutes. Like, watch a a commercial. Like, consider changing your cell phone carrier. Like, make yourself a sandwich, whatever, (laughs) and then come back in ready for the next part. Like, the, the, um, that's just not how kids want to consume it. So we've got to adjust instead of continuing to cancel shows that aren't getting watched by, like, old dads. Um, so, yeah, and Leandras, and then the one that I always mention is Sarah Gamble. Mm-hmm. Um, she was a massive inspiration to me when I was still a journalist. Um, I was eight, was and remained to be, like, a huge Supernatural fan. Like, I'm a, mm-hmm. I'm a super nerd about that show. My roommate used to, like, pull the DVDs out and, be, and like give me a number, an episode number, and I tell you the title. Or, like, start <laughs> to describe something, and I tell you, like, super nerd. Mm-hmm. I've seen them all a million times. Um, and Sarah came onto that show in season six, which was right when Eric Kripke, who created the show, left, and she was left with this boys club. Um, you know, that it's very hard for a woman woman to get heard in this industry when they are surrounded by men and that was a boys club show to this day it's like white dudes are are this only series regulars they've ever had um i think maybe katie cassidy and lauren cohen were regulars for a season maybe Mm -hmm. um but they've had 14 seasons and maybe 13 episodes where women were series regulars um and in comes Sarah Gamble, and, you know, the show was changing. The uh, the original creator had finished his part, so he, he had given it an ending. And she was tasked with, okay, it ended, how do I, you know, revive it? And she did an amazing job, and I remember just feeling like she was getting shit on by the fans and by, um, you know, I... I'd do interviews with people and they'd say things like they'd openly talk about how they didn't like where the show was going um, under her. And I feel so defensive of her during that time and so protective of her because, like, holy fuck how hard is it to step into that role? And the fact that she didn't, like, crumble means she's a warrior. And now she's got two shows airing at the same time and, like, She's just killing it. I really, really respect her. She also did a pilot that um, never got... Uh, it, it, the pilot got made, but it, it didn't air. It's called Company Town. It was about a sexual assault on a military base. And it was 
one of the most moving female driven things that I have ever read and it didn't go. Um, I think that in a post me too world, it would have been, it would have gone for sure, Mm -hmm. but nobody knew how to deal with like female pain being the subject of of a television show. Um, especially when that, that pain challenged such a status quo. Like Mm -hmm. it was, we, they were on a military base. They were questioning the military men. And I just, I don't know. I was so impressed by her. I'm so, so blown away by her. And every time that I see her, she's so kind to me. And she always was, even when I was a journalist, you know, like she'd see me at Comic-Con and give me a hug. And I was just like, uh, one of those people who I'm like, I can't remember. I believe you remember me, my face. Um, but yeah, I'd kill to work with her. Oh, the stuff she's doing at Magicians right mm-hmm. now. Mm-hmm. It's like every week I watch that show and it's like, how is she coming up with this stuff? Because she's and a it genius. Works. She's a Bunnies genius. Carry messages. You know? Like, it's mm-hmm. amazing. It's like the stuff she comes up with and the way that she puts these like silly fantasy things in with like, like real trauma and uh-huh. like deep relationship, like crazy deep stuff. But then there's like a bunny carrying a message. It's like I, I love. You know how the she first time it. the first time I was made aware of her was long before she was on Supernatural. She, um, you know that Ben Affleck Matt Damon show Project Greenlight. Yes. Oh. She was on the first season and she didn't. Her her script wasn't chosen. She had a partner. Um, they were a, a writing partnership, who was like were like trying to break into screenwriting and they were competing and eventually they they dropped. You know they got taken out of the competition. Mm-hmm. Um, that was the year that uh, they made that show made Shaker Heights, the uh, uh, Shia LaBeouf movie. But um, that was the first time I saw her, and I believe she was like a dancer before that. And like her and her friend were like, "We're dancers, and we're coming in here, and we're like going. We want to sit down with Ben Affleck and Matt Damon and pitch our show or our, our movie." And I just like even then, I was like, "She's so fucking cool." Right. Like, <laughs> anyway, it I takes love her. balls, man. Well, not balls. It takes boobs. Bringing the ovaries to the table. Mm. It does. And it's so hard, too, to feel like... I mean, even, like, the first time we emailed you, you're just like, oh, God, what did I... And then you're like, why the hell am I doubting myself? Like, I think it was... I think it was my mom. She was like, haven't you been blogging about vampires since, like, 2008? Mm -hmm. Like, pull your head out of your ass. You've been... And I was just like, oh, okay, Mom. Like, whenever I was, like, scared to do something or even, like, when we'd be at Comic-Cons pitching interviews to people mm-hmm. like your friend Stephen Amell, you know, pitching to do his panel. Like you guys don't have to do that stuff. You know, you don't have to give us chances, things like that, but it's hard to put yourself out there, you yeah. know, especially as a woman mm-hmm. when you're automatically just like, you know, there's the stigma. Here's what I've learned. Um, and I'm still learning, but this is my, my like mantra right now. I was a kid who spent my whole life, wanting to disappear into a wall. I felt like I took up too much space physically and I I have a loud voice. Um, People were always telling me how loud my voice was. Um, Always, all the time. And and I always felt like I never said the right thing. I felt like I never said the cool thing or the smart thing. I felt like I I knew I was smart. I'm usually the smartest person in a room. And I know that. But what was coming out of my mouth was awkward and uncomfortable and I'd like people would look at me like she doesn't know what she's talking about or like whatever I felt that way my entire adolescence and then and this is partly Julie Plack and partly um, you know my friends I've got an incredible 
fiercely loyal, fiercely compassionate tribe of friends around me. Um, and partly my mom. Um, but eventually I was just like, this is the space that I'm supposed to occupy. And this is the seat, this, that seat is mine. And that I deserve to be where I am. And if anybody has a problem with that, it's because they want your space, but that's not their space. It's yours. And, and you know, when you go into, you guys have worked really hard. And when you go into things like Comic-Con or an interview or whatever, like, that's your space. And, and I think that you have to say, you know, believe that you deserve it because you do deserve it. And, you know, there's there's nothing, there's no rule book that says, like, you know, somebody who works in a tower in L.A. deserves that space more than you guys who work out of your house in, you know, the Midwest. Like, that's not, that's not a thing. That's not, we're here in an industry that's about brains and about um, how you interpret your work. So, yeah, own your space. I think it's, it's something that I'm still, I still have to, like, remind myself of every morning. But, like, this is the space that I take up and I'm supposed to take it up. Um in all of the ways. And if my voice is loud, then other people should just learn to be a little louder if they want to be heard. Right. Then um, fuck off. No. Yeah, <laughs> a little bit, a little bit. Um, you know, I'm, I'm a people pleaser my whole life. And when I feel like I don't, like somebody doesn't like me, I absolutely fucking spiral about it. I mean, I just like, like, don't want to go out, don't want to talk to people. Like, I just freak out. And like, I don't have time for that anymore. Uh, I got way too much to do and so I have to be very confident in the decisions that I make and the way that I talk to people and um, I also have to be very good at apologizing because I don't have time to wallow and I make mistakes all the time I you know I'm extremely sensitive I'm extremely anxious and I do have a tendency to say things out of hurt or out of anger just had to learn to circle back and apologize and it's hard because it feels like a confrontation it feels like you're like it feels like a confrontation because it feels like you're confronting yourself and you're having to confront what you did instead of put it away but you know learning to apologize is part of owning the space that you occupy because if you hurt somebody that's your space nobody else is going to take the ownership of it and you you're you're not going to feel good about that space until you fix it so yeah, it's, I mean, it's been a really uh, interesting year for me. Being my boss is really hard um, because you, especially for me, like, I still want to be everybody's friend. Um, right. I think being close to people makes me a better boss um, most of the time, but not always. Um, but, uh, yeah, I fuck up all the time, and I just have to, you know, I I had to stop letting it destroy my self-esteem because I'm doing something scary. People are going to fuck up. And and also, you never see, like, the old men in this industry mess up and then go home and cry about it for a weekend. That's not, you know, sure, what happens. apologizing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They rarely apologize. I'm, I'm, I've worked with some men who do, but usually you've got, you got to make them. Mm-hmm. Um but apologizing is the only way for me to move past it. Um, acknowledging when 
I did or whatever. I mean, one example, I, I had a really, really, really rough day on set uh, this year. Actually, the episode you guys are going to see tonight. Um, there was a speech that uh, Nathan was doing that I'd written that hit really close to home for me and really close to home for him. And I was sobbing. Like, I just, I felt guilty about making him do such an emotional scene, knowing a little bit of what he was going through personally. I felt like I, it was hitting so close to home for me that I was like, I didn't go and put it on screen. It was, it was a hard day. And then we looked up and we realized that there was a prop in the scene that shouldn't have been in the scene because it gets put there later. And we're like, fuck, we're going to have to do this shit all over again. Oh no. And it... We couldn't do it that day. I was like, we're going to have to bring everybody back in and, and reshoot it because it's in every shot. And I was really upset about it. And when I told the cast, um, someone was there from like hair and makeup or costumes or a different department. I don't want to say which one it was because I remember who it was, but I don't want to say which one it was because I don't want to make people feel. And she was like, well, have you thought about doing X, Y, Z? And I kind of looked at her and I was like, no, this is the first time I've thought of doing that. Thank you so much for your help. And I like stormed out mm. and I was like, oh my God. And I literally just stepped into the hallway and was like, <gasps> and walked right back in and was like, I'm so sorry. I don't know why I snapped at you. Like I'm just having, mm. you know, and she was like, no, I'm sorry. I overstepped. Like, yeah, that's not my department. And I was like, yeah, but I'm, you're trying to help. You're seeing that I'm in distress. Mm. I'm snapping back. Like, ah, oh, but like shit's going to happen. You're going to have bad days as long as you don't make it, you know, who you are as a human being and who you are as a boss. I'm learning, um, you know, you move forward. And yeah, I do think that's part of being a woman. We, we're real used to apologizing. Um, but when we do need to, and, and part, partly like I think lately it's like we've got this thing where we're like, well, I'm going to fucking stop apologizing because men don't apologize. So why should I apologize? Don't apologize for who you are. Don't apologize for the space that you take up. Apologize when you fuck up. Mm-hmm. That's, you know, it's, it's what makes you deserve your space. That's great advice. Mm-hmm. I love it. Well, to wrap things up, um, we had one more thing. This is really random, but I know you really want to ask about it. The Dark Willow reference. Yes. <laughs> that oh was Dark gosh. Willow, right? Like yeah. Buffy Willow. Yeah. Okay. But I will say, I wrote that I wrote that line in. I didn't watch Buffy. It, it's just like a thing that I know. I know. All right, cancel your plans. It's just I know a we're thing. doing today. Sorry, screening. <laughs> you guys, I'm like, I'm not into it. I like, I, I've watched the special episodes, so I've watched... Yeah. Hush. Okay. I've watched um, the prom with the, like the umbrellas. Mm-hmm. I've watched the musical, um, and I've watched the pilot like a lot of times because I feel I wanna. It's just not my thing. It's hard. It was I watched it. Everyone that I talked to who loves it watched it at a specific point in mm-hmm. their life. Yeah. Yeah. And I randomly had to watch it because I took I had to take this four hundred level course in college outside of my major, and I was like, what the gonna take and there was philosophy and pop culture and we would read like an excerpt of plato or socrates or aristotle and then the teacher was a huge trucker and he was like we're gonna watch all this nerdy stuff so we watched hush of course i do not remember which ancient philosopher it was Uh. supposed to be a metaphor for but i was like okay i'll get into it and it was right after i went through like a really bad breakup and i don't this may sound really lame because i was like 20 but it was, like, one of the first times I realized, like, 
I can drink wine by myself uh-huh. and like watch something, and this is my favorite pastime. <laughs> and so I would just like drink like. And the world changed. Yeah, the world changed. You know, drink and watch it. So you gotta be. It's gotta be. It'll come yeah. to you. And it's if it I, doesn't, that's it's okay. What I tell people like I I had a dinner with somebody uh, a couple years ago who was a giant One Tree Hill fan, and he was like, I think he was like trying to fool, but he was mm-hmm. like, tell me why, give give me the pitch on why I should watch Dawson's Creek. Okay. And I was like, I don't care if you watch Dawson's Creek. I was like, it's my favorite, but I watched it when I was legitimately 10 years old. And, like, Mm -hmm. it meant something to me. And if you watch it now, it's not going to feel the same. And it's like teenagers talking like they're, you know, they've got a thesaurus shoved up their ass. And, and like, and I love it. I love it for my Mm -hmm. own reasons. I don't need anybody else to watch it. So Yeah. Yeah, no, I haven't seen Buffy, but I know enough about Buffy to make a Dark Willow reference. And I think Isabel probably has seen Buffy. She see, she would like Buffy. I Isabel think she would like Buffy. Absolutely. Yes. I think Isabel watched a ton of uh, like how else to learn how to be a, be a teenager, teenage human girl than to watch all that shit. Right. <laughs> That's so true. Yeah. And random Joss Whedon tidbit. So we finally got uh, my daughter to watch something other than Moana and Congratulations. Yes. So we were like, we got Lion King, and then we were like, let's try Toy Story. She likes Toy Story. You know, there are songs in it. I didn't realize Joss Whedon wrote the screenplay for Toy Story. What? I did not either. Yeah. It says Joss Whedon on there. But now that I think about it, it makes sense. Totally. I was like, it makes sense, but... It's genius. Like three, I'm sure he didn't write that one, where it's all like sad and they're holding hands and they're about to burn up. No, he seems like a one and done like with Avengers, Uh and then he was like, oh, you're going to make me follow MCU corporate rules? Deuces. (laughs) He's like a Mike Joss. Yeah. Go out on top. I love that. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so this much was for, great. for coming to Texas and hanging out with me. It's my favorite place to make people come hang out with me. Hell yeah. <laughs>